Well, good morning. Please turn in your Bible to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 1. We're going to be in word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to some images today that are strange to a contemporary American audience, and so as we try to understand these, please open our minds to what it means to come to the precious cornerstone you've laid. Please help us to understand Peter's meaning and use these images in us to promote godly change by your Holy Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, in J.R.R. Tolkien's book, The Hobbit, uh, there is this epic battle between light and darkness. Uh, the wisest and best of wizards, Gandalf, is uh, trying to fight against a shadow that threatens Middle-earth. And uh, uh, he, at the beginning of the story, he goes to the Shire and invites the hobbit Bilbo to share with him in an adventure that's for the common good. And this throws uh, Bilbo into a crisis because, like most hobbits, Bilbo is a bit of a comfort lover. He wants life to be safe and predictable and comfortable, and so the thought of an adventure uh, throws him for a loop. But there is a part of him that he gets from his mother's side that does crave adventure, and so uh, eventually he uh, consents to go with Gandalf. And even after he goes with Gandalf, he doesn't completely understand what he's gotten himself into. Uh, in the story, Bilbo wakes up that day not understanding that that day will actually be the most important day of his life because the decision he makes to follow Gandalf will change his life and, and set the course of his life story. And I share that story because our stories and myths and fairy tales are filled with characters who come to pivotal moments, and the decisions they make define the rest of their lives. And you can see that not just in our fairy tales. You see it if you read biography, if you like to read biography of people in history. You see that they face the same thing in life. And the reason I bring this up is because the passage we come to today explains that the most pivotal moment in each of our lives is the moment where we are confronted with who Jesus Christ is, what He claims, and what He calls us to, and then we have to make a decision. We have to make a decision whether to follow Jesus or not, and it's the most important decision we'll make because that decision not only defines our status now, it also defines the future we will experience. Let's read the passage together uh, and listen to what the Apostle Peter says about this issue. We're going to start actually back in chapter 2, verse 1, because I want you to see the context for what he says in our paragraph today. <clears throat> in 1 Peter 2, starting in verse 1, Peter says, "'Therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the Word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation, if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord.'" And coming to Him as to a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ. For this is contained in Scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in Him will not be disappointed." 
This precious value, then, is for you who believe. But for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word, and to this doom they were also appointed. So the exhortation for us from the Apostle Peter here in verses 1 through 3 is that we should crave the pure milk of God's Word so that we can grow in our faith. That sets the stage for what follows in verse 4. Uh, and I wanna, the observation I want to make about verses 4 through 8 to begin with is that they seem to contrast so starkly, and Peter seems to change the subject so abruptly. I, I began uh, preparing for this by rereading the Greek text, and I expected Peter to say, as you come to Him like newborn babies, in verse 4, because that's what the, the picture was in the previous verses, but he changes it. He, he doesn't. What he does is he changes the metaphor to speak of Christ as a living stone rejected by men, but precious in God's sight. And what he does is quote three Old Testament passages that all have building stones in them. In verse 6, he quotes a verse from Isaiah 28. In verse 7, he quotes Psalm 118, which is a messianic psalm. And then in verse 8, he quotes a verse from Isaiah chapter 8. Now, why would Peter feel the need to quote three different Old Testament passages that all have building stones in them, and then like use them to cobble together an argument? Why would he do that here in the middle of this letter? Well, I believe he's doing it because it goes back to something that Jesus taught during His ministry. If you remember, at the beginning of the Passion Week, Jesus was teaching in the temple. I think it was uh, Monday or Tuesday in the temple. He was teaching, and He rebuked the chief priests and Pharisees by telling them a parable about tenant farmers. There was this landowner who built a vineyard but went away on business into another country. He rented out his vineyard to some tenant farmers. And when the harvest came, he sent servants to the tenant farmers expecting to collect his portion of the rent for what they had farmed. But they beat one servant, killed another, and stoned a third. And so eventually, the owner sent his own son thinking that they would at least respect his son. But instead, they killed his son in an effort to try and claim the vineyard for their own. And Jesus concluded that parable by quoting the very same psalm that Peter does here, uh, and Jesus concludes the parable this way. He says, "'Did you never read in the Scriptures the stone which the builders rejected? This became the chief cornerstone.'" This came about from Yahweh, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. And he who falls on this stone will be broken in pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. Now, why would Peter turn to that parable and that same idea that Jesus taught here? Well, I think the reason is because, remember, Peter in this letter Peter is writing to Christians who are uh, being rejected. Uh, they're a small group of embattled exiles for Christ. They're being rejected by their culture because they live out of sync with the Greco-Roman 
world around them. And when Peter, as an apostle, calls people to follow Jesus, he knows he's calling them to face rejection from their own people, from their own families for following Christ. And in, in and thinking about rejection, that then reminds him of the rejection of God's cornerstone. Uh, and it teaches us two truths about Christ Uh, and about our identity if we choose to follow Him. And those two truths about Jesus that Peter points to here are that Jesus is the foundation and Jesus is the divider. Let's look first at Jesus as the foundation or the cornerstone. Again, in verse 4, Peter says, "...and coming to Him as to a living stone which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God." Uh, When Peter says at the very beginning of this, just so that we're all on the same page, when he says, and coming to Him, he he isn't referencing back to that moment when we chose to follow Christ in the past and come to salvation uh, and obedience to the gospel. Uh, In Greek, it has a continuous sense. As you continually come to Him, as you're living this Christian life, and week in, week out, you come to worship services uh, where you worship the Lord Jesus Christ, as you crave the pure milk of the Word and come to Christ when you read Scripture on a daily and weekly basis, as you come to Jesus during your walk through life, you are coming to a living stone who has been rejected by men but is choice and precious in God the Father's sight. And so, Peter is talking about Jesus as a stone, and there's four critical details about what that metaphor communicates that we dare not miss. First of all, the kind of stone Peter is talking about here is not like a large rock or boulder you would find while you're out hiking. He's talking about a shaped stone, a stone that has been cut and shaped to be used in building a building. Second, Jesus is a living stone. He he calls Him a living stone. He's reminding us of the resurrection, that Jesus didn't stay in the grave. uh, He rose again. And then third, this language harkens back to the Old Testament image of God as a rock. Over and over again, you see it in the Psalms. God is compared to a rock. And metaphorically, for the Hebrew speaker, that meant God is strong. Uh, He doesn't budge. He's like bedrock that you can build the home of your life Upon. And now that imagery is taken and applied to the Lord Jesus Christ, God's Son. And then fourth, Jesus is a living stone that has been rejected by the majority, but uh, is precious in the sight of God. In fact, He is the one that God deliberately chose, even though God knew He would be rejected by many. And this fourth detail alerts us to the fact that there are actually two building projects going on in life and in culture. The human builders examined the precious and choice cornerstone of God, and they decided He was unfit as a foundation to build upon. But God has made Him the cornerstone and foundation of His plan to redeem humanity. Peter said it this way to Annas and Caiaphas when they arrested Him in Acts chapter 4. He says, quote, Jesus is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that's been given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus is the one through whom God offers salvation, and it's a salvation that can't be found in anybody else. He is the foundation 
of God's redeeming work. And then Peter moves on in verse 5, and in verse 5, you find the two things he says about us who follow Jesus in this passage and, and our identity. He says, you also, as living stones, just as Jesus is like a living stone, you're a living stone being built up as a spiritual house. Now, let's contrast this with the first three verses. In the first three verses, the focus on you was as an individual Christian, and as an individual, if you're going to be spiritually healthy, you need to have an appetite for and crave the pure milk of God's Word so that you can grow in your faith. But now in verse 5, the illustration is of you being a living stone, a shaped stone that's been hewn uh, as part of God's building project, and the focus is not on you as an individual. The focus is on your relationship to the community of Christians in the temple God is building. So, in this illustration, verse 5, you are not a dead brick. You're also not a field stone, some kind of unshaped field stone lying out in a field somewhere disconnected from everybody. In this illustration, you're also not an individual temple to the Holy Spirit. You can find that in other passages. Here, that's not the illustration Peter's using. Uh, What you are in this passage is a shaped stone that is being put in a specific place in a temple God is building. And when you take building stones and you put them together according to an architectural plan, they become a single unit. Uh, Barclay, the commentator, shares this story about a Spartan king bragging about the walls of Sparta to a foreign king, and the foreign king comes and visits him and gets a tour of Sparta, and, and the king is trying to be polite. But he doesn't see the great walls of Sparta, and so finally he asked the Spartan king, where are the renowned walls of Sparta? And the Spartan king looks at his army, points to his army, and replies, these are the walls of Sparta, every man a brick. And that's the same kind of illustration Peter is using here about the temple of God. Each of us as living stones has a role to play for the integrity and well-being of the whole. And the implication then for us is this. Your purpose and significance as an individual Christian can't be realized apart from living in community with other Christians. You can't isolate yourself from being meaningfully involved and, and being known in a local church and be part of the spiritual temple God is building. You can't forsake fellowshipping and worshiping with other Christians. But as you do participate with other Christians in the life of the local church, you are being built up into a single unit that puts on public display the presence of God in the world. And then Peter mixes the metaphor again in the middle of verse 5. He says, you are being built up as a spiritual house for a royal priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices. So now, you're not only the temple, you are also priests in the temple. And the significance of being a priest in the Old Testament was that you could approach God in the temple in a way that other Israelites uh, couldn't. You could approach God directly. Now, this applies to you now as a New Testament priest of God. You can approach God directly because of the work Christ did on the cross. Now, this is important. Listen closely. You can approach God directly 
because of what the Lord Jesus Christ has done. And the New Testament clearly teaches that. You don't have to go through a Roman Catholic priest. You don't have to pray to Mary as if Jesus is an austere Lord who says no to everybody who makes requests, but He has a soft spot for His mom. So you need to be manipulative in prayer and go through His mom. There is a reason why in Acts and in the New Testament letters, you won't ever find anybody offering prayers to Mary. You won't ever find anybody offering prayers to uh, early Christian martyrs like James. They had all the time in the world to make St. James into a saint you could pray to. He died so early in New Testament history. You won't find one prayer to St. James. You won't find one prayer to Mary. And the reason why is because we can go directly to Christ. All of that teaching about going through saints and Mary, it's an end around for dealing directly with Christ. You can go directly to God through Christ. Or, uh, Jesus taught us to pray to God as our heavenly Father, but we can also go to Christ as Lord of the church, and you can pray directly to Him for the grace and help you need. Um, you are a New Testament priest. You can approach God directly through Christ, and you don't offer animal sacrifices, right, as your spiritual act of worship. Now, the question becomes in verse 5, at the end of verse 5, what is your spiritual act of worship? Well, Peter doesn't elaborate on it, but the rest of the New Testament tells us uh, what our spiritual act of worship is. We offer our bodies as living sacrifices using every part of our being as instruments of righteousness. We offer praise and thanksgiving to Him corporately in singing, but also in prayers. We offer up prayers of thanksgiving and praise that are talked about as sacrifices. Um, and so that's what we offer spiritually to our Lord. Now, if you have a sensitive conscience, as you go about offering these spiritual sacrifices, it's easy to say, well, look, I want to honor the Lord. I want Him to be pleased. I, I, I am sincerely coming to Him. But it's easy to wonder, if you have a sensitive conscience, if the quality of your sacrifices will be accepted by God. And Peter comforts us at the end of verse 5. He says, you offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ Jesus. Our attempts at spiritual sacrifices are valued by God because of the way Christ has reconciled us to Him already. God accepts the good in our spiritual sacrifices through His Son, Christ. And then Peter leaves off with us as spiritual uh, building stones in the temple God is building and as priest to return to the subject of our Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 6, he says, for this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a chief stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. So Peter started by talking about Jesus, verse 4. Then he talks about us as a holy priesthood, verse 5. And he returns to talking about Christ here, verse 6. And there's both an exhortation and a comfort. The exhortation for all people, Christian and non-Christian, is that Jesus is God's cornerstone. We have to recognize He's a cornerstone. Now, what is a cornerstone? Just to make sure we don't miss what's, what's being taught here. A cornerstone is the stone 
that is laid at the corner of the foundation of a building that's a, a square or a rectangle, right? And the ancients would use this cornerstone, they would lay it, and then every other stone that was laid in the foundation of that building was laid to fit the cornerstone, according to the lines of the cornerstone. They were all adjusted, if you will, to fit the cornerstone that was laid. And that physical idea descends into the English language with us uh, when we talk about someone who is a cornerstone. Sometimes you hear this in sports, right? We'll talk about a player who's a cornerstone of the franchise. Uh, A few years ago, Brooke and I watched a documentary called The Last Dance, and it was about um, the six NBA championships that the Chicago Bulls won when Michael Jordan was playing for them. Uh, Michael Jordan is spoken of in that documentary as the cornerstone of that championship dynasty team. He was the best player in the NBA at the time, arguably the best player of all time in the NBA. Now, imagine with me for a moment that during their championship run, uh, the Bulls had traded for a new player, and that new player had walked into the first practice with the team and announced to the coach, but, but for all the players to hear, had told the coach, I have my own way of playing the game, and I need Michael Jordan to adjust to the way I play. What, what do you think the coach would have said? No, Mike is the best player in the league. He doesn't adjust to you. You adjust to him. Well, the same is true in our relationship with Christ. He's the cornerstone. We don't try to get him to adjust to us. We adjust to him. God isn't going to redraw the architectural plan of what he's building to fit the oblong eccentricities of your unredeemed flesh into his building. He is building according to his plan, and every stone has to adjust to Christ, who is the cornerstone. Uh, That's the exhortation here. But there's also a comfort for us, and the comfort is that all who believe in Jesus, end of verse 6, will not be disappointed or put to shame. Your culture may reject you. Uh, They may shame you and treat you as the enemy of human flourishing, uh, right? Uh, The enemy of the common good and human freedom. But in the end, God will vindicate and honor you for believing in the precious cornerstone He chose. And so, your rejection by your culture isn't a sign that God has rejected you. It's just the opposite. The various ways your culture rejects you correspond to their previous rejection of Christ as the cornerstone. They, they correspond to the rejection that the cornerstone Himself experienced when He lived among us. Persecution is actually a confirmation that God has chosen you as a living stone in the building He's building, a building program in which Jesus is the cornerstone and foundation for all that's being built. But Jesus isn't just the foundation. Uh, he is also a divider, and we see that in verses 7 through 8. Uh, look at those verses again with me. This precious value, then, is for you who believe, but for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, for they stumble because they are disobedient to the Word, and to this doom they were also appointed. When I worked at the Master's University, 
my boss was Dr. John Street. And uh, we all, in the office, we all knew that John Street had a favorite movie. His favorite movie was What About Bob? And so, at opportune moments around the office, we would quote something from What About Bob uh, just to get a laugh. And uh, if you remember that movie, there's this scene uh, very early on in the movie where Bob goes to see a psychologist, and the psychologist asks Bob if he's married. And instead, instead of just saying no, he gives this explanation. This is his explanation to the, to the psychologist. There are two kinds of people in the world, those who love Neil Diamond and those who don't. My ex-wife loves Neil Diamond. <laughs> yes, thank you for laughing. It is a great moment. And, and what happens is the psychologist, like, it, he raises his eyebrows, but he sees through it just like, just like you do. Uh, and he says this, I see so what you're saying is that even though, you, uh, even though you're an almost paralyzed, multiphobic personality who's in a constant state of panic, your wife did not leave you, you left her because she liked Neil Diamond, right? It's a comic moment, and it's comic because, l- listen, a- as successful as Neil Diamond was as a singer and an artist, we all understand that nobody's dividing, nobody's getting divorced over Neil Diamond, right? There's there's bigger issues in the marriage if they're splitting up. Nobody gets divorced over Neil Diamond because Neil Diamond is not that important and he's not the great divider. But Peter says here, Jesus is that important and people will divide up over him. Uh, Those who follow him and those who reject him will have some awkward relationships, awkward conversations because of what they both value and what they've both chosen in life. And then Peter gives a contrast with what has come before. He says, if you've believed in Jesus, He is precious for you as a Savior. You won't be disappointed. You'll receive honor and glory from God uh, at His return. But to those who disbelieve, Peter then quotes, Psalm 118, the very verse that Jesus quoted to the chief priests and Pharisees to rebuke them for their rejection. And in essence, what Peter communicates then uh, is this to us. That verse in uh, first, uh, excuse me, that verse in Psalm 118 about rejecting the, the cornerstone that God has chosen and what it means for a person. Hmm. That doesn't just apply to the chief priests and Pharisees because Jesus applied it that way. It doesn't just apply to Jewish people who hear about Jesus but reject Him as Messiah. It applies to all Gentiles who are informed about Jesus. They understand who He is. They they understand clearly what He's about and what He calls people to, and they reject Him. And their rejection uh, fulfills the prophecy uh, of Isaiah and of Psalm 118. The majority of people, in fact, reject Jesus. The majority of the wealthy and the majority of those in power, the majority of tenured professors at universities, the majority in Hollywood, the majority in the media, the majority of people who are successful in politics, they reject Jesus. They look at Him and they basically say, no thanks, we're going to build this our own way. But they're going to find to their own shame that Jesus is the cornerstone God chose to save and redeem humanity. And they will, verse 8, fulfill the prophecy of Isaiah 8.14, which says to them, Jesus will become for them a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And then look at verse 8 for a moment with me. Peter also says, for they stumble 
because they are disobedient to the Word. So, in verse 7, they're described as disbelieving, but now they're described as disobedient to the Word. This is very important because this happens a lot in the New Testament. They are not disobedient to the Word because they break a bunch of commands that the Word uh, commands in its moral law. I mean, it is true they do that, and there are other passages that, they, the other passages that would call that lawlessness, okay? But that's not the focus here. The focus here is that they are disobedient to the Word because they won't come to the very person that the Word of God commands them to believe in, right? They reject the person whose God's, God's Word tells them to come to. And because of that, Jesus will become a stone that they trip over to their own doom. Now, the way that we translate the end of verse 8, it could give the wrong impression. It could sound as if the unbeliever's disobedience to the Word has somehow been predestined by God, and that's not what's going on here at all. When God appointed Christ as the chief cornerstone, by that very act, he preordained what the result would be when people reject Him. Nowhere in the New Testament can you find language of God predestining or, or uh, ordaining unbelief uh, and doom for people. What He's preordained here is what the penalty for unbelief will be for those who reject Him. And what it all points us to then, beloved, is this. Jesus is the great divider. And now, finally, in verse 8, uh, not only is He a rejected cornerstone, but He is a rock that people trip and fall over, because to reject Jesus is to stumble in sin because you're rejecting the one that the Word of God points you to. Uh, that's not news that our pluralistic culture uh, finds acceptable, but that is the truth. Jesus is the great divider, and how you respond to Him determines your destiny uh, now and in the future. But how you respond to Jesus, this is important, it doesn't have any impact on His destiny, right? Uh, I remember when I was in high school, uh, I, we, were, we had a youth group, and I remember one of the adult teachers in the youth group taught us one Sunday that God created the universe because He was lonely. And I remember at the time, it just didn't sit right. But I was a high schooler, right? I mean, I didn't know what to say. I didn't know how to respond. And later on when I was in college, I was studying John 17, uh, and Jesus has this high priestly prayer in which He talks about the love and communication and companionship that existed between all three members of the Trinity from eternity past. God isn't lonely. He's not codependent emotionally on humanity. All of us together could covenant together and in unity uh, decide to reject Him and steadfastly ignore His existence, and God would not curl up in some corner of the cosmos and suck His thumb. He's not lonely. There's a beautiful relationship and love between every member of the Trinity. Uh, and what that means for us also is that your acceptance or rejection of Jesus, it doesn't change His destiny. He is the precious and choice cornerstone God has chosen to be the focal point of human history. He will be exalted. He will found and then rule over an eternal kingdom. And so, when it comes to this question of who the cornerstone will be for humanity, there's only one person who has a vote that counts, and that's God Himself. 
And God made His vote clear through many signs to us. There was the star that led the Magi to where the chosen baby was born. There was the voice from heaven that was God the Father Himself when Jesus was baptized. There were all the miracles Jesus performed that pointed to His identity as God's chief cornerstone. But the main sign God has given us is raising Jesus from the dead. Jesus is chosen by God even though He's been rejected by humanity. He will be vindicated, and in the end, He will vindicate all who have chosen to follow Him. And so, uh, if you're a Christian, we need to say it this way. The Christian life is hard, but it's worth it. It's hard to follow the living stone that's been rejected by men because we're social creatures, and it means we'll probably face some rejection ourselves. Uh, Certain doors of opportunity won't be open to us. Certain groups and institutions will treat us like the village idiots for believing in Jesus and creationism and believing in the Bible. And so, you can kind of see that and wonder, well, is it really worth it to follow Jesus? And if that's a… and it's a valid question. It's a good question. And if that's the question you're asking, God's Word to you this morning is this, "'Behold, I lay in Zion a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in Him will not be disappointed.'" Uh, It may not look like it's worth it in this life, but when you consider the reward that awaits in the life to come, it is worth it. In the end, there will be no act you do as a follower of Jesus that won't be vindicated. And so, if you're a Christian this morning, don't think, well, I believe in Jesus, and so therefore I've fulfilled the entire intention of this passage. Have you? Do you live as if Jesus is the cornerstone of your life? Do you adjust your life to fit with Him as the cornerstone of God's temple? Or are there areas in your life where if it doesn't pay off to follow Jesus right away, you take matters into your own hands and do it your own way? Done properly, the Christian life is hard. It's difficult. You have to deny yourself. You have to face some rejection for Christ's sake. But when Jesus returns, you're not going to look back on your life and say, well, I'm sure glad I took matters into my own hands because that worked out well for me in the long run. I know what he's going to say. You're not going to look back on your life and say, you know, as I look back, I wish I just would have coasted more. I think that would have been good. I should have relaxed a little bit more. And then you're not going to say that when Christ returns. He will vindicate and reward every sacrifice made for Him. Are you living as if Jesus really is the foundation and cornerstone of your life? And if you're not a Christian this morning, I want to challenge you to consider following Jesus. The Bible teaches us that it's appointed unto all mankind once to die, and after that, the judgment. And at the judgment, God will judge all people impartially, according to His law, based on what they've done. Uh, His judgment will be fair and equitable and even-handed, but we're all going to be condemned because we've all broken God's commands. We've all done evil, and our evil deserves a punishment that's more than we can bear. But God in His love sent His Son into the world to live a perfect life and die a sacrificial death so that our sins could be forgiven. Jesus took the penalty for our disobedience on the cross. That's one of the things that makes Him the chief cornerstone in God's redeeming plan. But we can only receive the benefit of that sacrificial death if we obey God's Word by coming to Jesus as Lord, confessing our sin, bowing the knee to Him, and following Him, right? Um, And so, if you can admit that you need forgiveness, if you can admit that 
you deserve to be judged by God, and you want the forgiveness He offers through Christ. I would love to talk with you about that more after the service. And you know what? Every single member of our congregation can also tell you all about that as well because they've come to Christ as the living stone. Well, with the time that remains, I want to give uh, everyone, Christian and non-Christian, a few moments of silence to do business with God, and then I'll close us in a word of prayer. Mm-hmm. <laughs>